Thanks for joining me for the ending of Mark chapter 1. And if you haven't been able to be with me for the first couple segments of Mark's gospel, here's what I'm doing. This year in the Anchor Fellowship here in Colorado Springs, we're taking what I'm calling a literary approach to the first gospel, Mark's gospel, where because Mark is really spare with detail, I'm having a joyous sort of novelist's approach to just weaving in description bringing out a little bit more perhaps of an imagined backstory and helping us to have a week-by-week encounter with Jesus himself, just like those in the first century might have done. So you're going to hear a description that's not in the gospel itself. I'll be reading in the Phillips translation of Mark 1, 29 to 45, but I hope you can just sit back, maybe even close your eyes, relax, and let's be in his presence together. So I'm going to be starting again in verse 29, and before I do that, I want to give just a little background to this particular segment. An older woman is lying in bed, eyes closed, listening to the sounds of the morning outside her open window. The plashing of the wind-borne waves against the pebbly seashore down below the squawking of the gulls and terns high above, the occasional swelling sounds of the westerly wind, the rattling of the palm fronds tossed upon it. She opens her eyes and looks out the window. Toward the east, all is bright blue sky, thin leisurely clouds, and the distant heights on the other side of the sea, brown and green. Her little house is above her town, perched on the brow of a hill, and she both sees and hears everything that happens below, always has. She is something like the watchwoman of Capernaum. She also happens to be dying. It has started as these things often do, a shortness of breath, feeling somewhat off, then a sore throat, then the onrush of chills, sweats, flashes of intense fever and aches. She had continued along with her matriarchal duties, helping with her grandchildren, baking, presiding at evening supper, going to market, until she simply couldn't anymore. She then put herself to bed and called for the village doctor. He, a man she'd known since a boy, had nothing at all that could aid her. Her symptoms rapidly worsened, and this was weeks ago. Since, she has gone from bad to worse to much, much worse. The family has been beginning to think through the practical ramifications oncoming. Whispered conversations in the other room. Quiet talks about her things. Everything's been pointing to this week or the next being the last. She is looking out the window, listening again. She can hear the familiar sound of the synagogue door opening after service, all the voices and pent-up energy pouring into the square and back towards homes. But there is something different in the sound today. More shouts and unseemly sorts of outbursts, snatches of singing, even, she thinks, laughter. It doesn't sound at all like a Sabbath sort of crowd. And two, it is rising, not in volume, but in altitude. 
Are they walking up the trail toward her home? She thinks for a moment of rising to change her tunic, just in case. But even this would require more than she now has. She lies on her bed, looking out the open window, listening to the sounds of the morning, wondering at the approaching sound of the synagogue crowd. You see, Jesus got up and went straight from the synagogue to the house of Simon and Andrew, accompanied by James and John. He crossed across the market square and then began walking swiftly up the hill. All the people from the synagogue, having just heard his words, having just seen the demon-possessed man set free, are, of course, following hard on his heels. They begin speculating as to his destination. Uh, Tiberias? Bethsaida? Unexpectedly, he takes a spur trail, begins walking across the crest toward a little house, where Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a high fever, and they had lost no time in telling Jesus about her. She is listening to the louder and louder footsteps and voices. Whoever it is, they are nearly here now. She blinks her eyes rapidly, tries to push her hair from her forehead, wants to appear somewhat reasonably put together. She hears the outside door opening. She hears her son-in-law's voice softly calling her name. She can hear the sound of feet crossing the main room, turning into the hallway, and she is watching her door to see who will come in. The doorknob turns. The door opens. Framed in the doorway is the teacher, Jesus from Nazareth, who her son-in-law has left everything to follow as rabbi. (laughs) As a mother to her daughter, she had thought the whole thing perfectly ridiculous when she'd first heard, but she's held her tongue. And here he is now, standing in her doorway. He went up to her, took her hand, and helped her to her feet. The touch of his hand was cool and comfortable on her fevered skin. The look in his eyes was lovely. It was love. And the fever left her. Just like that, immediately. A sense of wellness, that wonderful feeling after a sickness, just cascades through her. And she began to see to their needs. She's into the wardrobe on with her favorite house dress, into the kitchen. She's already talking loudly of how tonight's supper will go. Simon and Andrew and James and John and all the wives and sisters, plus those outdoor watchers who'd walked up from the synagogue, are all aghast, overwhelmed. She's singing to herself as she pulls out each of the mixing bowls, sends her daughter down to the stream for water, flips through recipe scraps for something special. Jesus has gone outside onto the front veranda. He is looking down toward the sea, breathing in the warm air. Late that evening, after sunset, after a memorably delicious meal out under the gathering moonlight, they are all sitting in the open air, enjoying a last cup of the new wine. The light of the moon is reflected below on the face of the waters. The air is cool 
the night quiet and calm. They are talking about the day they've had, the synagogue teaching an exorcism, the walk up here, the miracle of the healing, the dinner, the goodness of the wine. But Jesus seems to be distracted by something. They all turn to see what he's looking at. He's looking down at a snaking procession of walkers lit by torch and lamplight who appear to be climbing the hillside trail upward. It is a long, twisting and turning, golden-colored parade. He stands to his feet to greet them as they come nearer. For they were bringing to him all who were sick or troubled by evil spirits. They'd been gathering all these people together since midday. Every case of fever, ache, pain, injury, limp, cough, broken bone, pleurisy, and worse, they had decided to congregate by nightfall and walk them all up. And now the whole population of the town gathered round the doorway. The sick were carried and pushed to the front toward him. They sat around his feet like so many children. And he healed great numbers of people who were suffering from various forms of disease, one after another. In many cases, he expelled evil spirits, but he would not allow them to say a word, for they knew perfectly well who he was. And all along, still sitting around the table where they'd enjoyed their dinner together, sit the first four disciples of this teacher and healer. Wives and children, aunts and uncles and cousins and their wives and husbands and children all sit in their spots and watch. Jesus is on his feet, sometimes kneeling down, and he's slowly making the rounds of these sick, disease-possessed, and hurting people on the porch. Those already healed are on their way back down the hillside. The faint moonlight lights the whole scene. Eventually, the four head to bed before he's even finished for the night. Then, in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a deserted place, and there he prayed. He had noticed the spot, a bull-shaped section of meadow filled with wildflowers and tall grasses, on one of his afternoon strolls a day or two earlier. He takes a seat with his back against a leaning slab of granite. He smiles as he lifts his eyes to the heavens. Well, Father, it has begun, he begins. More than an hour later, Simon startles his wife as he gets out of bed, gets dressed, wakes his brother in the other room, looking for the teacher. His mother-in-law had been the only one up that early, heading down for water to make up their breakfasts. He went up into the western hills, she tells him. Outside, a crowd has already begun to gather. So Simon and his companions went in search of him, following a goat trail over the craggy rise into the green and golden meadowlands. It took perhaps another hour before they found the spot. They were walking along a switchback descending downward, down through the low bushes and trees, when they heard the sound of laughter. Someone was talking to someone with great joy. 
as they drew nearer, they heard the someone using the word Abba. But when they arrived, they found Jesus alone. And when they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. The teacher smiled and looked off toward the north. Then we will go somewhere else, to the neighboring towns, he replied, so that I may give my message there too. That is why I have come. So he continued, preaching in their synagogues and expelling evil spirits throughout the whole of the Galilee. And the news of his words and deeds outpaced his travels. Then, on another day, as he was on the road connecting the chain of seaside villages, a leper came to Jesus. Somehow, he too had heard the word. Perhaps someone, leaving a bundle of food below his hovel, had left a note with words like these. The one who can heal you has come. We believe he is Messiah. Come down from the hills and look for Jesus from Nazareth. So this man, a leper in the eyes of everyone except his God, caught sight of this Jesus, knelt in front of him and appealed to him. If you want to, you can make me clean. Which, with the precision of a desperate man, this delightful economy of words, just nine, tells the exact reputation of Jesus. If you want to, you can make me clean. Jesus was filled with pity for him. He had, after all, thought of him, designed him, made him, knew the entire course of his life and story. And so he stretched out his hand, the hand that had carved these hills, filled the sea, stretched the sky taut over the Galilean countryside, and placed it on the leper alarming that man's flesh with its first touch in so many years, a shockwave of sudden sensation that thrilled his soul, saying to him, of course I want to. Be clean. At once, the leprosy left him, and he was quite clean. The two men now stand there, considering each other in the afternoon sunlight. Jesus, this broad-shouldered, thick-bearded man in his homespun cloak and tunic, shod in his worn-out old sandals. The former leper, with his ruddy, lovely, childlike skin and countenance, clothed in rags and bandages that tell the old story. They stand and smile at each other, experiencing the miracle together. Then Jesus sent him away, there and then, with a strict injunction. Mind you say nothing at all to anybody. Go straight off and show yourself to the priest and make the offerings for your cleansing, which Moses prescribed as public proof of your recovery. But the leper grins at him knowingly. He and Jesus both know all of that will have to wait. For instead... He went off and began to talk a great deal about it in public, spreading his story far and wide. 
He would testify from town to town as he made his way back toward the south, back toward his childhood home on the south shore. He wondered if his mother still lived, still waited for him. He told the story to everyone as he went there. He hoped to see his mother again. Consequently, it became impossible for Jesus to show his face in the towns, and he had to stay outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from all quarters. His disciples were with him, and they saw it all.